Well, welcome back to the third week in our series based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, I trust that this book has been valuable to you. I'm sure it has in the past, but maybe during these last few Sundays that you've gained something new out of this letter to the Philippians. This wonderful letter teaches us how to experience joy during tough, difficult times. And if you're going through some tough, difficult times, this is a great opportunity to read up on how to get through those times, how to not just survive, but thrive in those times. During week one, we covered chapter one of the letter where Paul urges us to live as if God is in control. And during the second week, we looked at chapter two where Jesus, our Lord, is presented as a perfect example for living as a servant in times of difficulty and persecution. He's our our model for enduring tough times. And now in week three today, we will look at chapter three of this letter, where we see that the Apostle Paul is also a model for us in learning what it means to endure hardship and to live a life of loss. Now, that doesn't sound great. Why would I want to live a life of loss? Well, hopefully at the end of this time together, you'll understand what this all means. The suffering and hardship should come as no surprise to us. <laughs> Maybe we can't explain the meaning of suffering philosophically, but we can go through hard times in a Christ-like way. And Jesus said, if they've persecuted me, they will persecute you. And the Apostle Peter, in another letter, said, don't be surprised as if some strange thing were happening to you when you encounter hardships. And in another context, Paul himself encouraged new believers with these words, <laughs> Encouraged. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In fact, one of the last messages given to us by Paul in 2 Timothy reminds us all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So today we will look at Philippians chapter 3 and discover that Paul offers himself as an example for how to go through hard times. Very near the end of this chapter in verse 17, He says this, he says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. This kind of exhortation is common in Paul's letters. He often offered his own life as a personal example. But the Philippians had a unique perspective in understanding how Paul endured persecution. The book of Acts records uh, that in the very first days after Paul arrived in the city of Philippi, he was thrown into prison. He responded to this imprisonment by singing praises to God. And God responded to Paul's praises by supernaturally breaking him out of jail. Even the Philippian jailer was impacted by Paul's example. The jailer took Paul into his house, bandaged, bandaged his wounds, and became a follower of Jesus. He and his whole family actually were baptized as new converts. So Paul's example while he was planting the church in Philippi is instructive in in two ways. First, there's frequently a connection between fruitful ministry and difficult days. And second, the world is watching as followers of Jesus endure tough times. Did you know that? People are watching you. Wondering how you're going to get through this difficulty. I'm sure there are a lot of people watching those who follow Jesus who lived in Lahaina, Maui. Wondering how are you going to get through this? Does Jesus really make a difference in your life? 
And how Paul responded, and, and by extension, how we respond, becomes a means of evangelism. Our actions authenticate our message. Now, maybe you've never been thrown in jail for your testimony of Christ. Maybe you've never been beaten because you were a follower of Jesus. The difficult days come in many ways and many forms. There are plenty of believers who have suffered the loss of family relationships because of their belief. There are plenty of believers who have been passed over for promotions at work because they put their, their faith first and their employment second. There are plenty of believers who make choices involving a personal loss in order to remain faithful to Jesus. Maybe you're one of those believers. Or if you haven't faced difficult days, let me encourage you, as Paul and Barnabas encouraged the first church they planted, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The question is not whether we will face hardship or suffering. That's a certainty. The only questions are when and how will we face the trouble? When you first became a follower of Jesus, did anyone share with you that you were signing up for difficult days ahead? <laughs> you were at the altar and they prayed with you and you received Christ as your Savior and they were saying, well, you know what now? <laughs> difficult days are coming. You're going to be in trouble now. They're coming after you. I don't remember that at the altar. I don't remember those, those words spoken to me about that. But the thing is, is that when we, when we receive Christ as Savior, that should be an expected thing. Trouble is going to come. Persecution, trouble are part of the good news. Maybe you're here today and you're investigating the claims of Christ. You're not really a follower of Jesus, but maybe you just you know about it and you're, you're, you're curious. Now, I won't deceive you by telling you that your life will always be easy as a follower of Jesus. It won't. It won't. In fact, a sincere desire to follow Jesus often involves loss and suffering. But with very good news as well, you will be headed for a joy unspeakable that is full of glory. So, today in chapter 3 of Philippians, uh, I'd like to give you five points, five points to help you understand how Paul is also an example for us in living a life of loss in the face of difficulties and trials. So let's look at chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3. And the first thing that we see here is that Paul is saying, watch out, watch out. Verses, uh, first three verses, verses 1 through 3 of Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write that's the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. I will stop right there. Do you see Paul's warning here in verse 2? We should watch out for people who preach a false gospel. Watch out for them. Now, false gospels come in many different forms. And during Paul's day, it was common to hear a message like, in order to follow Jesus, you must first submit to the law of Moses. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says, watch out for those dogs. In order to understand who those dogs were, we need to go back into the early history of the church. So allow me to give you a brief church history lesson as I put on Dr. Mark Weinert's hat. Some of you know him as a history teacher and George Fox and 
big history buff in Christianity. From the very beginning, the gospel came to the Jew first. So that the first seven chapters of the book of Acts deal only with Jewish believers or with Gentiles who were Jewish converts. In the eighth chapter of Acts, the message went to the Samaritans. But this didn't cause too much of an issue since the Samaritans were, they were at least partly Jewish. But when Peter went to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, <laughs> that created a big uproar all over. Peter was called on the carpet to explain his activities. And after all, the Gentiles in, in Acts chapter 10 had become Christians without first becoming Jews. Whoa, how can that happen? That's not, you didn't do it right. And this whole new thing for the church came about. Peter explained that it was God who had directed him to preach to the Gentiles, and the matter seemed to be settled. But it wasn't settled for long. Paul was sent out by the Holy Spirit to minister especially to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 13, you can read about that. And Peter had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And Paul followed his example on his first missionary journey that you can read about in Acts chapter 14. And it didn't take long for the strict Jewish believers to oppose Paul's ministry and come to Antioch, teaching that it was necessary for the Gentiles to submit to Jewish rules before they could be saved. And then this disagreement led to the conference at Jerusalem that is described in Acts chapter 15. Now, the result of the conference was an approval of Paul's ministry and a victory for the gospel of the grace of God. Gentiles didn't have to become Jewish converts in order to become Christians. I'm thankful for that. You all probably are thankful for that too, unless you have a Jewish background. You didn't have to convert to Judaism. You didn't have to do that. But the protesters, those people who kept on saying, no, this had to happen, they weren't satisfied. So having failed in their opposition to Paul at Antioch and also at Jerusalem, they followed him wherever he went and tried to steal his converts and his churches. This group who tried to mix law and grace are called Judaizers. Judaizers. The letter to the Galatians was written mainly to fight against this false teaching. So it's this group of Judaizers that Paul is referring to in verse 2 when he describes them in such a way. And he uses three terms to describe them. He says, those dogs, those dogs. Now, the Orthodox Jew would call the Gentile a dog, but here Paul calls Orthodox Jews dogs. Ooh, <laughs> okay. Now, Paul is not just using names. He's comparing these false teachers to the dirty scavengers so distasteful to decent people. It's not like your normal common pet. House, household dog, not that. These dogs, when they roamed around the city, they were looking for stuff to devour. They were looking, and they were mangy, and they just they didn't have great, uh, great way of life. And so, like those dogs, these Judaizers snapped at Paul's heels and followed him from place to place, barking their false doctrines. They were troublemakers, carriers of dangerous infection. He also called them men who do evil, men who do evil. Now, these men taught that the sinner was saved by faith plus good works. You couldn't just do faith. You had to have the good works as well, too, especially the works of the law. But Paul states that their good works are really evil works because they are performed 
by the flesh, the old nature, and not the spirit. And they glorify the workers and not Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 and Titus chapter 3 make it very clear that nobody can be saved by doing good works, even religious works. A Christian's good works are the results of his faith, not the basis for his salvation. So you have men who do evil. He also, also described them as mutilators of the flesh. Mutilators of the flesh. Here Paul uses a pun on the word circumcision. The word translated concision literally means a mutilation. <laughs> the Judaizers taught that circumcision was essential to salvation. But Paul states that circumcision of itself is only a mutilation. So the true Christian has experienced a spiritual circumcision in Christ and doesn't need any operation performed on the body. <laughs> circumcision, baptism, the Lord's Supper, tithing, or any, any other religious practice can't save a person from his sins. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do that. So in contrast to the false Christians, Paul describes the true Christian in verse 3 that we just read. He worships God in the Spirit. He doesn't depend on his own works. He boasts in Jesus Christ. And people who depend on religion are usually boasting about what they have done. The true Christian has nothing to boast about. He boasts, his boast is only in Christ. <laughs> and then he also says he has no confidence in the flesh. Now, popular religion, religious philosophy is the Lord helps those who help themselves. It was also popular in Paul's day. And it's just as wrong today as it was then. And by the flesh, Paul means the old nature that we received at birth. The Bible has nothing good to say about the flesh. And yet most people today depend entirely on what they themselves can do to please God. Flesh only corrupts God's way on earth. It profits nothing as far as spiritual life is concerned. And it has nothing good in it. No wonder we should put no confidence in the flesh. This heresy of the early church has been met and dealt with. But in our day, we will more commonly hear a false gospel filled with false promises on comfort and ease. Become a Christian, life is easy. You'll be just fine. We will be told the following, you know, Jesus always leads to prosperity or better health or, or more happiness. Become a Christian. Now, of course, eventually in heaven, these things are true. <laughs> but the false gospel in our day is all about becoming wealthier and healthier and happy right now. It's as if following Jesus is just a ride down a lazy old river. But the path of least resistance makes both men and rivers crooked. Maybe you've heard of a gospel that says God will never let anything bad happen to you. Become a Christian, and you'll, you'll experience good days. Many people's faith can be on the verge of folding simply because they begin to face hard times. Going through difficulties. God, where are you? I thought you, I thought you were with me. Where's my faith? Oh, no. The promise of instant wealth and health and happiness may sound like good news, good news but the, the true good news is that Jesus will be with us through whatever we face. He'll be with us in good times or in bad times. 
So bad theology creates its own difficulties. Bad theology can become a a harsh taskmaster. It can force us to lie about our circumstances in order to convince everyone that everything is just wonderful. Bad theology can also lead to feelings of guilt if things are not going well. Or cause us to ignore feelings of guilt and feelings that could lead us to repentance in life. But Paul is warning his friends in Philippi that they should be on guard against bad theology. The theology of dogs, basically. At its core, dog theology says that you can impress God and others with your religious behavior. But don't believe it. Don't believe it. Another thing we see here in Philippians in verses 4 through 7 is that we need to be a loser for Jesus. Be a loser for Jesus. Paul explains how dog theology had fooled him, and he had been taught that he could impress God by keeping all of the Jewish laws and by earning his own salvation. But notice what Paul says about his past life here in verses 4 through 7. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So from Paul's past perspective as a Pharisee, this is an impressive list of credentials. (laughs) But no, these credentials mean nothing to him. Paul says that he considers the past to be a loss. And not only the Apostle Paul, as we begin our journey with Jesus, we are called to leave behind whatever investment we have in the old way of life. Another way to say this is that Jesus is for losers, (laughs) really. We must lose our own way of thinking. We must lose whatever confidence we have in our past accomplishments. It's not just the people who are down and out who need the gospel. There are people who are up and out, who also need the gospel. People who have climbed the ladder of success only to find they had placed the ladder on the wrong wall. Both groups need to know that in Jesus, their past does not matter, whether that past is good or that past is bad. The only thing that counts is the new creation in Christ. So Paul tells us to watch out be a loser for Jesus. He also tells us that everything is lost compared to knowing Jesus. Listen as Paul continues the same line of thought here in verses 8 and 9. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul considered everything in his life to be lost compared to knowing Jesus, even the good stuff. One lesson that Paul had learned and that he shared with those in Philippi and that he shares with us today, of course, was that we should lay all of our accomplishments on the altar of God. Whatever you've done in the past, lay it on the altar. Give it up. Whatever you're doing right now and you've accomplished at this point, give it up. Give it to God. 
The prophet Isaiah understood this well when he said that our righteousness was as filthy rags. The gospel doesn't care about our achievements or about our failures. The gospel cares only for us and what will happen after we decide to follow him. In fact, Paul calls this the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. But what about us? What about us? Do we consider knowing Jesus to be the greatest thing about our lives? You may have, uh, have, have overcome significant hardships. You may have survived a difficult childhood and found a stable and happy life. You might have overcome abuse from a loved one or someone you trusted. You may have overcome some kind of addiction and found sobriety and peace. You may have worked hard to earn an advanced degree from a university or achieved a, a high level of success in the business world. But we should learn from Paul's example. He considered everything a loss, even the good stuff. So do you know this surpassing worth? That, that question is for both believers and seekers. Maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. I'm here to tell you there is a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. It will surpass whatever difficulties you face or whatever achievements you have claimed. But I'm also asking those of us who have already decided to follow Jesus, do you know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus? It's all too easy for Christians to settle into trusting lives of comfortable religious habits instead of knowing Jesus more and more and more. And as you do that, you'll probably be getting out of your comfort zone more and more and more. Well, this brings us to, to the fourth point from Philippians chapter 3, and that is there's more to know of Jesus. There's more. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of, of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. We should be amazed at these words. <laughs> Here the great apostle who served Jesus and accomplished great things for the kingdom of God says plainly, I want to know Christ. There was more of Jesus for Paul to get to know. We might be tempted to think, well, if Paul doesn't know Christ, then who does? <laughs> but Paul's point is that our, our eternal, infinite Lord always draws us further into His goodness and in His glory. We always are learning, always knowing more about Him. There is more of Christ for Paul. And there's more of Christ for us to know as well. And notice too, Paul's list of, the, of those things which he still wants to know and experience, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of, of, of sharing suffering with Jesus, becoming like Jesus in his death, and attaining a new quality of life both now and in the resurrection. So here Paul is most definitely an example for us. We are on a journey with Jesus. And because our Lord is infinite, there is no arrival point. We continue to learn. There's always more of Him to know, always more of His love to receive, and always more of His mission to join. 
Would you really have it any other way? (laughs) So Paul tells us to watch out, be a loser for Jesus. Everything is a loss. Everything is lost compared to knowing Jesus. There's more to know of Jesus. And finally, fifth and final point from Philippians chapter 3, Jesus has something in mind for each one of us. He had something in mind when he picked the the Apostle Paul, and Jesus has something in mind for each one of us as well too. Follow along with me in verses 12 through 14 of Philippians chapter 3. It says, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? (laughs) Paul understood that Jesus had taken hold of him for a reason, and it was Paul's personal mission in life to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of him. And do you see this one simple word, the word that? This simple word reveals the fact that God lays hold of each one of us for a reason. He has a purpose in mind for you. He has a purpose in mind for me. Jesus had something in mind when he picked you. And Paul knew the secret of his life would be revealed as he followed hard after Jesus. And notice the connection between Christian maturity and discovering our purpose. Mature people trust that God will reveal his purpose for them. God will do it. The purpose will come. Do you long to know the purpose for your life? Kind of wandering a little bit? We can confidently follow Paul's example that in joyful obedience to Jesus, we will discover that for which he laid hold of us. This is a tremendous comfort, whether in times of trouble or in times of of, of ease. What would the world see if they watched us as we discovered and fulfilled the purpose for our lives? And the good news is that Jesus will reveal our purpose. And he did it for Paul, and he will do it for us too. So if Paul were here in this room with us today, what would he tell us about standing firm in the faith during difficult times and living a life of loss? What would he say about this message today and how to put it into practice? I think we can find that interspersed among this chapter. First of all, I think Paul would tell us, no Christ. K-N-O-W, Christ. (laughs) No Christ. (laughs) Verse 10. But Paul, Paul wanted to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. He wanted to have an intimate knowledge of Him in a personal relationship, not just an intellectual understanding. There's so many people in this world that have an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is. They've read about Him. They know about Him. They know He's in the Bible. He was a person of history. But they just don't have that personal relationship. Coming to Christ means we have the power to overcome temptation live that transcendent life, a life of commitment to know by by experience the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. When we truly know Christ, we don't shrink from persecution. In fact, knowing Him means we, we will be hated and persecuted. Paul had been told at the beginning of his ministry that suffering awaited him. 
And he counted it a privilege to be able to suffer for Christ. So Paul's, Paul's readers had, an, had also experienced such suffering as well too. But knowing Christ means we become like Him in His death. Paul certainly had in mind here dying to self and sin. Physical suffering has a way of teaching us what is important in life, doesn't it? If you've ever gone through some difficulties like that, boy, your focus kind of gets a little keener at that time, thinking, okay, what really matters here these days? I can attest to that when I was going through my neck and shoulder and arm issues. I'm talking with my chiropractor just last time I was in there uh, last week, and he, he, uh, he asked me about, well, what are you going to preach on Sunday? I thought, well, let me tell you. <laughs> but he asked about that, and then I said, you know, and it's the sufferings we go through, and I think that, that situation issue that I've gone through with my shoulder and arm and everything in the neck that's been going on for huh, a couple weeks, three weeks, um, that has helped me identify with those people who are going through issues physically as well, too. You have the pains, you have the aches, you have the problems, you have the major issues as well, too, of health. It just helps me get a better perspective of that. This will go away sometimes, some, some, some way, somehow. And if it doesn't, I guess it will be the thorn in my side. <laughs> but the thing is, is that we will go through those difficulties. We will have those moments where, where knowing Christ is, is helping us advance in our, our walk with Him and, and our journey with Him. And those physical sufferings will tell us again what is more important in life. Those things purify us. They refine us. They draw us closer to, to Jesus. Knowing Christ means experiencing His power in our lives to, to die to sin and selfishness. I think another thing Paul would tell us uh, in how to apply this chapter to our lives is Keep your eyes on the goal. Keep your eyes on the goal. Paul concluded in verse 11, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul wasn't sure how he would go to, the, to this resurrection and get to this resurrection, whether through his death or through the second coming of Christ. It didn't matter which one. And he confessed he hadn't already obtained all this. He hadn't already been made perfect, as we read in verse 12 but he was confident that it awaited him. He trusted in God's promises. He would, as in verse 14 tells us, press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. And that prize in that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me is certainly everlasting life in heaven. Christian life is one of constant growth. We're always becoming more and more like Jesus. But our knowledge of Him is never fully realized until we see Him face to face. Until then, we continue to be learners of Jesus. What does He have for us today? How can we learn from Him? What can, what's something new we can learn from Him? And Paul said in the verses 13 and 14, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on which implies work and great effort. Not that he had to work his way to heaven, but he had to struggle to stay the course. The picture we get here is of a race in which the runner must be resolute and focused on the goal. A runner will never win the race if he or she is constantly, constantly looking backwards. Coaches will tell you in track and cross country, don't look behind you. Keep going. Keep running. 
as fast as you can. Paul made it his priority to forget what is behind. And this is key to standing firm in our Christian faith. We need to let go of past failures, let go of past mistakes, not allow ourselves to be held captive by, by guilt or regrets. But we also must be willing to forget our past successes and accomplishments. The Christian faith must be lived in the present tense and our, with our eyes firmly fixed on what is to come. So in verses 20 and 21, Paul offered more incentive for keeping our eyes on the goal. He reminded us that our citizenship is in heaven. This is not your home. Because we are aliens or strangers in this world, our focus should always be on our heavenly home. And Paul said, we eagerly await a Savior from there who will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like His glorious body. The hope of what is to come helps us to stand firm and to turn our gaze from the things of this world to, to the eternal and focus on that. I think also, too, Paul would tell us if he were here today implying this message to our lives, he'd say, live what you already know. Live what you already know. Regarding Paul's comments so far, he said, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Verse 15. The mark of spiritual maturity is pressing on. It's not giving up when the going gets tough. It comes from keeping our eyes focused on the goal. Paul must have known there were some who disagreed with his conclusions. So he added in verse 15, If on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. So there's no more Paul could say to convince readers of the truth of his words. He trusted God to confirm it to their hearts. And you know, there are Sundays where I come, bring the message. There's no more I can tell you about God's truth. I trust that God will apply it to your hearts and you'll live it out in the days ahead. We all have an obligation to live up to what we have already attained, what you already know, what you already have figured out with Jesus. Live up to that. But don't be satisfied. <laughs> Keep learning. Keep learning. God's people should be obedient to what they understand. But Paul's command, though, isn't an excuse for living at a low level. What had the Philippians already attained? They attained salvation in Christ Jesus. They already had intimate knowledge of, of the Savior and His righteousness and power. Living up to that was a high calling. We can't use lack of, of, of knowledge or understanding as an excuse. We know enough to live the kind of life God requires. And I think one last thing that Paul would tell us in applying this message to our hearts, follow the example of godly characters, God, godly Christians in our lives, godly people that know Jesus as their Savior. Paul begged his readers to follow his example and to take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you, he says in verse 17. And by following Paul's instructions, young believers would be able to grow quickly to maturity. They would avoid the pitfalls along the way. And they, in turn, would become models for others in their walk. Talk about discipleship. <laughs> and then Paul said, therefore, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord. In, in chapter 4, verse 1, he concludes all that he said by saying, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord. 
So knowing Christ and seeking to become like Him, keeping our eyes on the goal, living what we know, and following the example of godly Christians is the secret for standing firm in Christ and living a life of loss. If we could just learn to keep our focus on the goal and the prize, right? If we just learn to do that consistently. If we could just occupy ourselves with knowing Christ and becoming like Him, we would probably get rid of 90% of the fussing among people. Don't get sidetracked. Paul said, we're in a race. We need to run it with perseverance, not allowing anything to distract us. And Paul ended all of this that he said in, in chapter 3 of Philippians chapter 3. He ended it in, in the beginning of chapter 4 of Philippians by saying, rejoice in the Lord. He started, that, started chapter 3 with that, and he ended all of this, beginning of chapter 4, by saying that as well too. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, sometimes our trials and struggles threaten to steal our joy. But when we take our eyes off our circumstances and focus on the Lord, we can do little else than rejoice. He saves us. He can keep us. So let's rejoice about that. It's how we learn to live a life of loss. What a beautiful letter here we have in Philippians. Paul was writing from prison in order to encourage those who are not in prison. First, Paul pointed to Jesus as one example, living through difficult times. And then in this chapter 3, Paul asks us to consider his life as well. And there's a final application for us today. Could we point to our own lives as a model for living through tough times? Could we have that and say, follow me as I follow Christ? Are we able to say that with confidence? Follow me as I follow Christ. I believe that's, that, that it's possible to demonstrate a joyful connection with Jesus that is living, that is vibrant, whether in good times or in bad. Are you willing to live a life of loss and live a life that says, follow me as I follow Christ? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. And Lord, for speaking to our hearts right now, I ask that you would just continue to work in our lives, work in our hearts right now. Help us, Lord, to put this message into practice. Help us, Lord, to identify the different areas in our life that we need to just give over to you. And maybe, Lord, you're, you're speaking to our hearts about certain different things. And I just pray that we would be obedient to what you have for us, what you've said to us today. Lord, if it's uh, an area where we need to trust you more, maybe, maybe it's an area of knowing you more. Lord, I pray that you'd help us be able to just come to you today in prayer. Get right with you in that way and just get on track with you again. Lord, maybe it's some of us here today that just need to have that assurance, encouragement from you. Keep on going. Keep on running that race. You're doing great. Just don't let anyone cut in on you. Don't look back. And maybe for some of us, Lord, we're tempted to look back. Help us not to do that. Help us to keep our eyes upon you. Help us to follow the examples that are around us that are following you, godly examples. And I pray, Lord, that you again 
but just speak to our hearts about the need to, to go deeper with you in our relationship. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us apply this message to our hearts. Not only that, but to allow you to use us this week in working out your message in us to express to others around us. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for what you're about to do this week. We love you, Lord, so very much. In your name we pray. Amen.